Okay, just a reminder on the boxes that we're sending over to Jim Myers. Those need to go out by uh, August 10th, so that's the deadline. Make sure you check and see what uh, what's needed, what you, how you can help with that. And also, Camp Arete is going on this week, so be in prayer for them. I did get a text message today from... Uh, one of the helpers up there, everything seems to be going very well at the camp. And then uh, make a note of the uh, DM2. Did you get stuff from them? Not yet. Have you rem- So is Brett Nasworth. Tell them to write something, get it to us. We need it. Um, we need to know what's, what, what's going on. This is basic. It's a good training seminar. We need to have a good show a good turnout. I think everyone will benefit from it one way or the other. So that uh, that will be September 18th, which is a Thursday night, Thursday night, all day Friday, all day Saturday, and then uh, a good bit of Sunday as well. Sunday morning that week will be normal, but after then we'll have a break for lunch and then finish up in the afternoon. Okay, I think that covers it for announcements. I think everybody was sent the uh, email today with the prayer request for um, uh, the, the doctor and the nurse who contracted Ebola in Liberia. Both of them work with uh, Sudan Interior Missions. They're both uh, very well known by Dan Hill and his wife, Pat, who Dan's a former pastor of Southwood Bible Church in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, many of you know Dan. So we need to be in prayer for them. They're, they're um, solid believers focused over there serving the Lord, and both of them have contracted Ebola in the process. Now, if your theology of suffering isn't great enough to handle that and that a young man of 33 who's married and has, what, two or three children, two children, and that he is going to go in, in to a place like that and contract Ebola and probably die, then, then you, don't, you really don't understand the doctrine of suffering in Scripture. It's hard but that's often God's plan, and and throughout the centuries we've seen that happen, and that's what the book of Job is all about is helping us understand that, that God does have a plan and he is in control, and even though it looks like a waste to us and something that is unnecessary, God is going to use that in tremendous ways, and he may, in his grace, we pray that he will uh, heal that doctor and nurse and that they will fully recover. And we pray that that will happen. So before we begin, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. And after that, I will open in prayer. Silent prayer is for you to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word. And um, we need to make sure that whenever we spend time in prayer, we remember scripture says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So through confession, we are forgiven and cleansed. And then we can go forward in the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your grace in our lives, your grace that gives us everything we need to face whatever situation or circumstance that comes our way. Father, we know that you are in control of the details of life, and even when we are obeying you, 
things that is no guarantee that everything will go great and that everything will be wonderful. And as we look at this uh, young doctor who's serving in with uh, Sudan Interior missions, missions and serving in Liberia, we pray that you would heal him, that he would have the right care, and you would uh, strengthen his body to throw off this virus. But, Father, we know that even if you don't, that his death would be to your glory and to honor you, and we pray that you might use that in a magnificent way. And may he be a real example to each of us on what it means to serve you and just to put our life in your hands that we might go forward serving you, recognizing that you uh, you will take care of us and that no matter what happens, even if it means physical death, we're just instantly absent from the body and face-to-face with you. Father, we pray for us in this congregation. We pray that you would keep us focused upon your word. Father, we pray for those up at Camp Arete. We pray that that would be a positive and tremendous uh, weekend of, week of ministry there and that the teens would be very responsive to that which is being taught. And, Father, we pray that we might be able to focus on your word as we continue our study of your plan for the ages. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we continue our study in on dispensations, focusing on and continuing to focus on the church, focusing on the church age. Last time we talked about the main scripture that is covered in the church age, going from Acts 2 through Revelation 3. The key person, is, but not the only person, is the Apostle Paul, and that the name for this dispensation is usually the church age or the age of grace. I want to add something to that. There have been some dispensationalists in history who have identified the church age as the age of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit's dispensation. I think that's important for us to notice because the primary distinctive of this church age, that's which makes it the church age, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which we looked at last time in Acts chapter 2. And I think that's an important thing. We'll come back to stressing that, but not all dispensationalists focus on that. Some will focus on the grace aspect as being the key element. I think it's the Holy Spirit aspect that is the central element uh, for the church age, but we'll get there uh, eventually. I've focused on the responsibilities, which is to utilize the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses, to be ambassadors for Christ, to grow to spiritual maturity, and to serve the Lord in everything that we do. So that the basic test in the church age is to is whether or not we will walk by the Spirit and fulfill the mission that God gave to the church to be a witness uh, for Jesus Christ. And failure that comes as by the end of the church age, the church will become apostate. False doctrine will dominate the church, and it will no longer have the impact it should have uh, on those around it and will fail in its witness and testimony. There will be grace in the church age in that the church will not go through the judgment that will follow the church age, and the all church age believers will be raptured before the tribulation, a doctrine known as the pre-tribulation rapture. And we will get into that when we get to the uh, dispensation or the time of the tribulation. Last time I looked at the parameters of the church age. We saw that the church began on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, and this is described in Acts chapter 2. I spent the time pointing out that when uh, the Holy Spirit descended, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that descended upon the apostles in Jerusalem 
and uh, that's described in Acts 2 when when uh, they came out speaking in languages they hadn't learned, that the question was, are, are these men drunk? What's going on? These are unlearned, unlettered Galileans. How can they speak all of these different languages, and how can we understand them? And the uh, Apostle Peter answered the question with this extensive quote from Joel chapter 2, which focuses on the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit at the end of the tribulation period what we identify as the tribulation period, as the day of the, the great and al- day of the Lord Almighty occurs at that time when God, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, returns in judgment to the earth. We'll get into all the details of that when we get into the tribulation. But it is at that point when the King, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, takes his rightful place as the, as the Son of David, as the ruler over Israel and establishes his kingdom on the earth at that particular time. That is when, as we've studied in the past, that's when the new covenant is fulfilled. That's when the Davidic covenant is fulfilled. And part of the new covenant is this outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. Now, in Joel chapter 2, Joel describes the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit as involving a number of different features. He said that um, God prophesied that he pour out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters would prophesy. Your young men would see, see visions. Your old men would dream dreams. And the spirit of prophecy would be upon everyone. Well, that didn't happen. What All of the things that were described by Joel, uh, of all the things that were described by Joel, none of them transpired on the day of Pentecost. What took place on the day of Pentecost was that the apostles spoke in languages they hadn't learned. Tongues is never mentioned in Joel 2. So when Peter says this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, what he means by this, if you go back and you remember those four categories I taught about how Old Testament passages are used in the New Testament when you have this fulfillment language, that the third category was that something in the Old Testament a situation, an event, uh, a person is applied to something in the New Testament, that there's only one point of difference. In a, the difference between a type and an application is that in a type there are many features that are parallel, but in an application there's only one feature that they have in common. And so that the point of the quote, the, the, the fulfillment statement, is that this is like that. All Peter is saying is that this is the same kind of thing that God promised the Holy Spirit would do at, at the time of the day of the Lord. And so we should not be at all surprised about this. And then he went from there uh, to give the gospel. So this is when the church began. It has to do with this outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. That's the second point is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what forms the church. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to Matthew 3.11, was yet future. According to Acts 1.5, which Jesus spoke just before he ascended to go to heaven, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was yet future. Indeed, he quotes almost verbatim what John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.11. He says, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be, future tense, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, showing that by by uh, April of 33 A.D., of A.D. 33, 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, had not yet occurred. It had never occurred before this in all of human history. And we looked at passages, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, Paul addressing the Corinthian believers who were as carnal and messed up as any group of Christians could ever hope to be. And he said, we have all been, past tense, baptized by the Holy Spirit. It includes every single believer. So between Acts 1-5 and 1 Corinthians 12-13, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place. In Acts 11-5 through 17, uh, as Peter is describing to the, his fellow apostles in Jerusalem what had just happened when he took the gospel, uh, to Cornelius, to the Gentile uh, in, in Caesarea by the sea, the Roman centurion, that when they believed, they received the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, as we looked at that passage last time, that when Peter, uh, when that happened, Peter said it happened when they believed just as with us at the beginning, emphasizing the beginning. Now, the, one of the reasons I'm stressing this by way of review, is because there are numerous theological groups, covenant theology, Lutheran theology, Roman Catholic theology, just to name a few, that look at the church as a generic term that describes all believers from Adam forward. All the Old Testament saints were part of the church. All New Testament saints are part of the church. They view the Old Testament as primarily the Jewish church, and this was in church history. When the, the, some of the early fathers got distorted on this, they started looking back to the Old Testament as the frame of reference uh, for the church age. They didn't understand this distinction between Israel and the church. That faded by the second to third century. And they looked back as their, as their pattern to the Old Testament. And as a result of that, they, uh, adopted a priesthood and you had the Roman Catholic, what became the Roman Catholic Church, uh, identified the pastors as priests, and so you had the introduction of the priesthood. They talked about having an altar in the church, at the front of the church, and that kind of terminology has even slipped into certain uh, churches that are not Roman Catholic. You have uh, many evangelical churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Episcopal churches will have an altar at the front. An altar is a place where a sacrifice goes. I always wonder, where's the altar when I've been in churches like that? Uh, cler- clerical vestments became part of the, uh, the, the uniform of the, the clergy, the priests. They had temple-like buildings. They referred to the ordinances of the church as sacrifices and sacraments. All of that kind of terminology reflected a view that there was a continuity with the Old Testament, with Old Testament Israel as the church of the Old Testament and with Old Testament uh, priestly function as if that were to continue into the New Testament. They failed to understand this distinction between the what between the the body of believers before the cross and those uh, those after the cross. So this is important to understand how this has impacted things. Uh, those are the slides from last week. Now, second, uh, the third point I pointed out last time, or third point, what I want to get into some new material this time, is the third point that the church was future 
and not yet present when our Lord spoke in Matthew 18. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, not to Matthew 18, Matthew 16. Just a typo to test myself. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. This is a critical passage because up to this point, the Lord doesn't use the word church. Now, you have the word ecclesia used in a non-technical sense uh, in talking about an assembly, but not in terms of, of, of the church until you get to this particular situation. And I want to just look at the, at the passage a little bit. I want to read it, and then we'll give you some background so you can understand the passage. This is one of those, I think, wonderful, fun passages that when you understand the historical geographical background to the passage, a lot of things sort of make sense that might not have made sense when you were just reading through the text. So we're told, first of all, in verse 13, that Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, as we look at that, where is Jesus? Basic questions of observation we went through in Bible study methods. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Where was Jesus? He's in Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is not the Caesarea where Cornelius was. That was called Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the sea. This is Caesarea Philippi. Obviously, it's named for a Caesar. That's why it has the name Caesarea in there. But it's a, it's a different location. And he's, it, it's, it's as far north in Israel as you can, you can be. And I'll show you the map in just a minute. And he starts quizzing his disciples. Well, who do people say that I am? What are they guessing? And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven indicating that spiritual truth is only perceptible when God reveals it to us. And then verse 18, Jesus said to him, and I also say to, say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I want you to notice this is a passage where a lot of the mythology about Peter and the golden gates having the keys to heaven, the keys that the Pope has, this is what this comes from. But when we actually look at the passage, we'll see that the, all of the tradition built up around Peter is completely bogus and doesn't have anything to do with what the Roman Catholic Church claims that it has, has to do. Now, let's get into a little background. Here is a, this is a little better map. This map gives you a little bit of a perspective, but we're going to go to the, with this map. Don't you think that map's a little clearer than that map, or do you like that one better? You like the second one better? Okay. That map. All right. Now, for those of you who are going to go to Israel, and some of you who have been to Israel, uh, we're going to go back to this location this year uh, in November to Caesarea Philippi, 
And this is located where the red circle is, up in the far north of Israel. This is the Sea of Galilee. This whole area that we see in this map is basically the region of the Galilee north of, north of Samaria. Samar- this is the Esdralon Valley down here on the lower left, or the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, this little ridge line that runs uh, from northwest to southeast here is the ridge line of Carmel. And about where I have my arrow there is where Mount Carmel is located, where Elijah uh, did battle with the priests of Baal and the Asherah. So Jesus conducted most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee here. And on this particular occasion, they traveled north, and this is about 20 miles to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this Caesarea, as I said, is to be distinguished from Caesarea Maritima, which is not on this map, but it's about maybe 20 miles south of Dora over here in the lower left-hand corner, uh, right on the uh, Mediterranean Sea. This is Caesarea Maritima, and Ce- I mean uh, Caesarea Philippi. And it had another name, as you, and you probably can't read it from, from where you're sitting. Underneath that, it has the alternate name, how it's known from through most of history, it says Panias, P-A-N-I-A-S, because it was named for the Greek god Pan. You know, it was named for the Greek god Pan, but it's usually known as Banyas with a B because in Arabic you don't have a P sound, a hard labial. You just have a soft labial, so they pronounce it Banyas. So that's how it's come to be called Banyas. Now, this was considered to be the domain of, of the Greek god Pan, and, and it, one of the unique features at this, there are two unique geolo- geological features here that we need to pay attention to, and it helps us to understand that what the Lord is really doing here, uh, not only do we have a play on words, but he is also uh, playing off of the scenery, playing off of the geolog- ge- geographical or geological attributes here. And that is that there is a huge, enormous rock escarpment there. And at the base of it, there is a deep chasm. Now, that deep chasm is known as the Grotto of the God Pan. And that's a little sign they have there at the, at the uh, National Park that they would uh, have sacrifices there for Pan and that this was one of the entry points to Hades, okay? And they eventually built uh, temples there and uh, at the time of under Herod the Great and as uh, near the end of his, of his reign, it was brought in and incorporated as part of his empire. And then uh, under Herod Agrippa, they built a temple there and named it for the Roman emperor Augustus. So it's called Caesarea, just as uh, Herod had named Caesarea, Caesarea after um, uh, uh, Caesar, after um, uh, after Augustus before. So Herod's son Phil- Philip calls it Caesarea Philippi. It, um, Herod, Herod had named it because of his uh, uh, honoring Caesar because he had rescued him a couple of times. So the cave was thought to be the entry to Hades, and in this artist's depiction of what it looks like, you can see that 
that the, here is the temple built to Pan, here's the opening uh, that you see behind it, and people would come in and make sacrifices and throw those uh, into, into the um, uh, chasm. Now, here's a couple of stalwart men who are charging the gates of hell. We always take time to do that when we go on one of those trips. Okay, so now you've got an understanding of the historical background and these geological features that help us to to uh, understand what is going on here. So Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He is right here on this spot. And he asked his disciples the question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, that question's important because Jesus is identifying himself with a title that is ascribed to uh, the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, there is this depiction that at the end of days, the um, that the Son of Man will come forward and God the Father will uh, give him the authority to come to the earth. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. And the Ancient of Days gives this commission to the Son of Man to go and establish his kingdom on the earth. And he comes to the earth and he destroys the kingdom of man that has had several manifestations over history, the Babylonian period and then the Persian period, then the Greek period, then the the Roman period, and each of these uh, successive empires carried on certain uh, traits from previous empires and then added new, new features to them. And so collectively, they represent the kingdom of man, man doing the best he can to establish utopia on the earth. Man has always tried to establish utopia upon the earth. Uh, one of the manifestations of that is socialism, and socialism thinks that the government can solve the problems of man. They can only solve problems that they can identify, but they can't identify or understand the real problem that man has, which is always related to sin. And until you can solve that problem, you can't establish a utopic empire or a utopic kingdom. And so because Jesus solved the sin problem and was himself without sin, when he returns, he will be able to establish a perfect kingdom upon the earth. So when he asked this question, he is self-identifying with the Messiah. He's not, uh, Jesus isn't someone that the uh, disciples came along and thought so much of that they ascribed deity to him. He clearly understands that he is the Messiah. So he says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist had already been executed by this time, that he had resurrected. Some say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said to them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, answered and said, you are the Messiah, Hamashiach. You are the anointed one. He is, Peter gets it. He's identifying Jesus as the promised and prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament and that he is the son of the living God. Notice how Peter makes the transition from son of man to son of the living God. Now, we've studied this in the past that these phrases, son of man and son of God, are, are Hebrew idioms the way in which they would describe someone 
uh, certain characteristics about someone is they would say they were the son of the, and then the noun would be the characteristic. So if someone was a murderer, they wouldn't just say you're a murderer. They would say you are the son of a murderer. If someone was a thief, they would say you're the son of a thief. They're not saying that their father was a thief. They're saying that they are the product of that characteristic or that quality. So when you see Jesus called the Son of Man, it's emphasizing his humanity, that he is fully human. When he's called the Son of God, it's emphasizing his deity, that he is the he is full deity. So in this passage, we have Jesus affirming his humanity and Peter affirming his deity. We have the hypostatic union here. Jesus is the God-man. So now that Peter has correctly identified who Jesus is, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood had not revealed this to you. This isn't human viewpoint. This isn't something that you derived on your own. But my Father who is in heaven, Jesus attributes. Now, this is important for understanding the the, the 19th verse. Jesus is attributing priority to heaven not priority to man, that it starts in, everything starts in the mind and the plan of God and works itself out in human history. So Simon didn't just generate this on his own. This is part of God's plan from eternity past. And uh, it is the Father who in heaven who has revealed that to Peter. Verse 18, Jesus goes on to say, and I also say to you that you are Peter, This is where he has a paranomasia. He has a pun, a play on words. Uh, Also, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, here we have the setting. He's sitting there. They're right there in front of this huge rock escarpment with this opening that goes who knows how deep, that's considered to be the opening to Hades. And so Jesus is not only going to introduce a little pun on the Greek word petros and the Greek word petra, but he's also playing off of the scene that they're seeing in their background, and he's saying the gates of Hades, and they're right at the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, this is the visual play play that we see here in this picture. And then in this slide, I'm pointing out the two different Greek words. You have Peter is is literally Petros in the Greek. That's his proper name. His Aramaic name was was Kephas. There's the, the sibilant S. It would be indicated by a sigma, but it is uh, in, in Aramaic. Uh, it's indicated by a, a K, so it's pronounced Kephas. A Petros means a small fragment of a stone or a pebble. And so it's something rather insignificant, just a little piece of gravel, uh, pea gravel that gets stuck in your sandal. And so he says, you are Petros and on this rock, and he shifts to a feminine noun, Petros was a masculine noun. He shifts to the feminine form, 
petra, which refers to a large rock or a boulder. And so he's, by shifting gender, he's indicating that there's a significance what he is saying, what he's, he's not going to be talking about Peter the man. He's talking about something else when he uses the term rock, and he's, it's on this rock. What is this massive, substantive uh, rock that he's going to build his church? And then he uses a future tense verb there saying, I will build it, indicating it's not present now. I'm not building it now. It's not in existence. See, this is what separates, one of the things that separates dispensationalists from all other Christian theologies is because everybody else thinks that God started building the church with Adam. But Jesus comes along and says, I will build my church. It's yet future. He hasn't started yet. The church is completely distinct from Israel. And he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, we have to understand a little bit something about what Hades is because there's a lot of confusion in English language between Hades and the word hell, which doesn't have any correlation to anything biblically. That, that's a word that derives from Old English and possibly uh, some ancient Scandinavian language and was used to translate the Greek word Hades. But Hades was a location where the dead went in the Old Testament. And in uh, Luke chapter 16 indicates that there is a, uh, a place where the dead go uh, that is identified, uh, as identified as Hades. And it is comprised of two places, paradise, otherwise known as Abraham's bosom. And this is the location of the Old Testament dead. There's a great gulf that is fixed between one side of Hades and the other side. On the other side, we have a place called Torments, which is where the Old Testament unsaved went, as indicated in the, in the parable. I mean, excuse me, it's not a parable. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man that in in torments, this is where the unsaved went, and it is a place of fiery, uh, fiery torment. It is not the lake of fire. That's another location. Tartarus is a place where the angels, uh, the fallen angels, who uh, interfered with the human race in Genesis chapter 6, are now in bonds of, of darkness. They're in chains of darkness. And, and incidentally, when you are... Uh, reading Russian history, and you read about the Tartars that come from the east. That was the term they used for the Mongols, and they were such demons in their fighting that they were like the demons from Tartarus, so they became known as the Tartars. That's where that term came from. So on one side, you have Old Testament believers. On the other side, unbelievers from all the dispensations where they go. And after the cross, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, paradise was taken by the Lord Jesus Christ to heaven. So he had the keys of Hades. But Jesus is not talking about the keys of Hades in this passage. He's talking about the keys to heaven. 
Jesus had the keys to Hades, and he went down, he unlocked, took paradise to heaven. Old Testament saints did not go to heaven until after the cross, and then paradise was moved to heaven according to these passages, 2 Corinthians 12.4, Revelation 2.7. Now all that's left... Now all that's left is torments, and that is where the unsaved go, and, of course, Tartarus. Now, the next verse that we see after the uh, statement that Jesus will build the, the church in the future, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it because Jesus Christ controls Hades, and the church is the body of Christ. In verse 19, he says, And I will give you, speaking to Peter, but, not, but it doesn't exclude the rest of the apostles. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, keys are that which opens a lock and secures entry into a location. The key that secures entry into heaven is the gospel, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the responsibility initially of the apostles to go throughout uh, it, it, Israel and Judah, and to proclaim the gospel. And so this was the key to getting into heaven. Now, the phrase kingdom of heaven in Matthew always refers to the future millennial kingdom. It doesn't refer to some mystery form of the kingdom today. It refers to that those who want to be in the kingdom of heaven, in the millennial kingdom, need to trust in Christ as Savior. And then you will be in the kingdom. You will be there when Jesus Christ returns, either as uh, those who were still Old Testament saints until the cross or until after, after, after the day of Pentecost, it would be church-age believers. And then Jesus uses an idiom here that we find in rabbinic literature. And basically this idiom refers to uh, rabbinical authority to accept or reject someone. And he says, whatever you bind on earth, that would be accept. Whatever you accept on earth, what would be their basis for accepting someone on earth? Their faith in Christ. Whatever you accept on earth. And then it says, will have, it's a perfect tense verb, will have already been bound in heaven. That's probably the best way to do it. In other words, God's plan precedes human action. Doesn't exclude volition. It's just simply stating that God in his omniscience already knows all of the knowable, and God in his omniscience has already deter- already knows who will trust in Christ and who will not. And God in, in eternity past declared that whoever believes in Christ as Savior will be saved. He had, Christ has, God has, excuse me, God the Father has already determined who would be bound and who would be loosed. Those who would be bound would be those who trusted in Christ as Savior. Those who would be loose with those who rejected Christ as Savior. And so Jesus is simply expressing the authority of the apostles in terms of accepting and rejecting on the basis of the predetermined criteria of God, which is that the gospel, belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here we see that that when he talks about the keys of the kingdom, that whatever you, you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now, if we go back to the play on words in verse, 
in verse 18, you are Peter, the small, tiny pebble, and on this rock, what rock is that? There have been various interpretations of the rock. Some have suggested that this rock refers to Peter's recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, that is somewhat acceptable. There are some other unacceptable interpretations of, of the passage, but the best way to understand it is that the rock that Jesus is talking about is himself. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10, Peter is once again preaching. This is his uh, second message after the, um, or third message after the, uh, well, second message after the, fir- the, the first one on the day of Pentecost and one on Acts 3. Now this is the third one in Acts 4. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, talking to the Sanhedrin, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. That is the man that he and John had healed. This, referring to Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. So here Jesus is viewed as the chief cornerstone. Peter again quotes from the Old Testament dealing with this same passage, in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Coming to him, that is coming to Christ, Peter says, is to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones. The church is viewed as a construction of stones, and each believer is another stone put in place. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The foundation, as we'll see in a second, are the apostles is made up or composed of the apostles and prophets. And then we have the construction of the church. Each individual believer is a living stone. Verse uh, 6, 1 Peter 2, 6, the bottom verse, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect, that just means chosen or, or the select one, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says, For no other foundation can, be, can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And then we come to Ephesians 2.20. Now, this helps to transition into the next point. Ephesians 2.20, at the conclusion of Ephesians, Paul has been teaching that in the past, before the cross, there was a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. But the cross broke down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile as well as the wall of separation between man and God. But it wasn't until the cross that Jew and Gentile could come together. That shows a covenant theology hasn't read the scriptures very well because they maintained that the church has, is the body of all believers, Jew and Gentile, from Adam. But what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is that Jew and Gentile, there was a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile until the cross. Now, as he concludes that, he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. By prophets here, he doesn't mean Old Testament prophets. He means New Testament prophets, those who had the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. People like 
Mark. Mark wasn't an apostle. He was an associate of Peter. Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark as one who had the gift of prophecy. Luke, another one who was um, not an apostle, was the associate of apostle. As a writer of Scripture, he would have had the gift of prophecy. It's possible that James, who writes the gift of James, not an apostle in the sense of the eleven and Paul, but that he had the gift of prophecy. Jude as well. These non-apostolic writers of the New Testament would have been prophets. Paul, Paul says that the foundation for the church is, are the apostles and the prophets. But Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, using a, the, a, the, the imagery of a building of all believers throughout the church age, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Notice the emphasis on God the Holy Spirit's role in connection with building the church and and inhabiting the church. This leads us to the next point, the next point in understanding the parameters of the church age that the church began. We're still dealing with the emphasis on when the church began because the bone of contention between dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists is that dispensationalists argue that the church does not begin until the day of Pentecost. Jesus spoke of it as future the coming of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was spoken of by future by both John the Baptist and Jesus in Acts 1.5. And yet by the time we get to Acts 11, it's already a completed reality. Okay, why didn't they expect this? It's said to be something completely new. The church is said to be a mystery, a mystery, a previously unrevealed truth. That's what mystery means. It doesn't mean a whodunit. It's not talking about a murder mystery or some other kind of suspense novel to try to figure it out at the end, the term mystery related to previously unrevealed truth. So in the Old Testament, there's no prophecy related to the church. There's no inclination or or there's no indication that there would be anything coming along that would... um, come after Israel, that would become alongside of Israel as another people of God. So the church is said throughout the New Testament to be a mystery, Romans 16. We'll look at these verses in a minute. Um, A mystery, something hidden in the past, but now revealed. The church was never revealed in the Old Testament. So let's see how Paul talks about this. Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. This verse comes at the end of Romans as he is giving his final parting benediction. To him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. So he defines it very clearly that the revelation related to this mystery was not disclosed for ages. It was kept secret. God, it was in the mind of God from eternity past, but he did not disclose it or reveal it to humanity in previous ages. 
Verse 26, he says, but now, watch that particle now, it's very important, now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets. See, the prophets there cannot refer to Old Testament prophets because the mystery doctrine wasn't revealed by Old Testament prophets. So he's saying it's manifested now and by the scriptures of the prophets. This would be New Testament prophets. Uh, According to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. The word there translated secret is the word sagao, meaning to keep silent. It's a perfect passive participle, which would indicate that it should be translated the revelation of the mystery, which has uh, totally or completely been kept secret. Uh, It's a completed action in the past, but it's no longer reality. Okay, it's completed in the past. Then the next major passage we look at is in Ephesians 3, 1 and following. Now, I want to read this to you, and then I'm going to make some points, some observations related to this, this mystery. Clearly what we see, listen to this as we read through this, this passage. What Paul is saying is that there would be a period of time in which believing Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, would be co-equal heirs of God's blessing. And they would be equal members of the same body and equally partake of God's promises in Christ. Something that he had just talked about was not present prior to the cross. So he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship, what's the, what's another word for stewardship? Administration or dispensation. They all mean the same thing. So we could, uh, I think the King James translated it is if, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of God's grace, which was given to me for you. This is another passage whereby people call this a uh, basis for calling this a dispensation of grace. It was given to Paul specifically. That's why he is called the Apostle of Grace. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So he's talked about this before. He's talked about it, but this is where he gives a little more content to it. He says, by referring to this in verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into previously unrevealed doctrine about Christ. That's what mystery means, previously unrevealed doctrine about Christ, which in other generations, that would be up until this time, in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. They didn't know about it in the Old Testament. They didn't know about it until Jesus first mentions it in Acts, I mean in Matthew 16, and then through the Apostle Paul, the distinctiveness of what God was doing in this church age uh, became known. So he says, in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now, notice that word, now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. See, that's not talking about Old Testament prophets. It's real easy to think that in Ephesians 2.20, 
when Paul talks about apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, that the prophets he mentions there go all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. But it's clear in all these passages throughout here that he's using the term prophets in terms of New Testament, the New Testament gift. So it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles, here's the thrust of this section, the Gentiles are joint heirs or fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. He doesn't yet define the body. And fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship or dispensation from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery. See, the, the preaching, the content of his preaching is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. That's the second or third time we've seen that, that it was hidden from the past ages or generations. So what we see, first of all, is that the mystery revelation reveals that there would be a time when believing Jews and Gentiles would be united together in equality in one body. It wasn't true in the Old Testament. It's only true after the cross. And that is specifically seen in those first six verses, but it's specifically in verses verses four and five, specifically five, and other generations was not made known to the sons of man. So this cuts the legs out from under covenant theology, Roman Catholic theology, Lutheran theology, Wesleyan theology, holiness theology, although some holiness Preachers were dispensational, came along and became dispensational. But it cuts the legs out from anybody who partakes in a replacement form of theology. Second thing we can see from these verses, Paul defines this body as the church, which is the mystery. This is seen in the parallel passage in Colossians 1, 18 and 24 to 27. Specifically in Colossians 1.24, he talks about the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. So Christ is identified as having his body, which is the church, ties those terms together for us. And Paul says in verse 25, of which, that is, of the church, I became a minister according to the dispensation, that's how the King James translated it, the administration from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So he defines the mystery here as the church. It was never revealed before, never known in the Old Testament, very clear from these passages. Point number three, the plan that God had is for a unique spiritual body that was composed of believing Jews and Gentiles alike, and that this was clearly God's plan from eternity past. It was in his mind and part of his purpose. Verses 9 through 11, specifically verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. So he had to bring Christ into into human history, the Incarnation, to go to the cross, and in fulfilling that purpose, then he could bring into existence the church. But first the cross had to take place. 
forth, Paul declared that this knowledge concerning the church had been kept hidden from the past ages in Ephesians 3.9, as I've emphasized already. And then the fifth point, God states that, I mean, Paul states that God did not reveal this until the time of the New Testament prophets. We just can't emphasize that enough. These five points really undercut uh, everything but dispensationalism because only dispensationalism sees this clear break between God's plan and purposes for the church and God's plan and purposes for Israel. And the most distinctive characteristic of the church is the presence of God the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then the sixth point is that one of God's purposes for revealing this ministry was to be to show evidence, to give testimony before the angels. This is seen in verses uh, 9 and 10 of Ephesians 3. Paul says, and to make all see, that, that's a pregnant all, humans and angels, all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. There's another way of talking about the fact that it wasn't previously revealed. Has been hidden in God, who created all things through through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, all of the complexity and fullness of God's wisdom, might be made known by the church, that's you and me, by the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Those are the ranks of the angels. So God is doing something in the church. If you're a church-age believer... Your life is is on display as as evidence before the angels. This shows one of the things we'll get into is the important role the church plays in the angelic conflict. And so this gives us an understanding. How do we know there was no church in the Old Testament? Number one, Jesus said it's future. I will build my church. Number two, God the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, was prophesied by John the Baptist as future by Jesus its future in Acts 1-5, but by Acts 11 it was a reality. 1 Corinthians 12 recognizes everyone has a gift, uh, uh, has, has been baptized by God the Holy Spirit. We're all uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit and indwelt uh, by the Holy Spirit. And that this was a mystery, something that was never revealed before in the Old Testament and was a complete and thorough surprise. It was not expected, not anticipated, but it is for a purpose of demonstrating the wisdom of God to the angels. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, reflect upon these passages which give us such a clear understanding of the, of the beginning of the church. The distinction of the church is really focused upon uh, God the Holy Spirit and the unique uniqueness of the body of Christ, this unity of a Jew and Gentile as equal heirs in Christ. Father, may we come to recognize that that you have really called us into our salvation for an extremely significant purpose, and that is to be a testimony to the world and to the angels of, of of your grace and of your wisdom and and help us to come to understand just what that means, that, that our lives have a, a purpose and a significance that goes far beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And we pray that you'd help us to understand that. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.